So what we're going to do today is, is look how Nehemiah took this very um, basic educational process that we use in every problem-solving issue today, and we're going to examine how Nehemiah used that process. And the very first thing that we need to do when we're getting from where we are now to where we want to go is we need to collect data. And that is perhaps the most um, um, non-fulfilling part of solving a problem because we want to get to the end point as quickly as we can. And what we need to do is collect data, information. It's extremely boring. It's extremely task-oriented. And collecting data doesn't preclude you from bringing other individuals in to help you collect that data. All right. Now, once you get all the data in that you think you need, you now spend the next thing, which seems to be very boring and, and without reward, and that is what we call assimilating the data, figuring out what the data means. Once we figure out what the data means, then we can decide what components exist within the final problem. It's called a diagnosis in medicine. And sometimes it's just not one thing that's causing a particular problem that we're trying to solve. It may be several different components. So we collect data, we assimilate the data, we then figure out what the problem specifically is, what's causing the problem, what causes cause the problem, and then we come up with a solution. So okay, now I've got the data, I've assimilated the data, I have exactly what's causing the problem, and now I'm going to come up with a plan on how to fix this, how to get from point A to point B. Then I execute. Now, all of a sudden, I'm actually doing work, which is the more fulfilling part of it. So three-fifths of it is all up here. Now, all of a sudden, I'm actually working and I'm getting something done. And a lot of times while you're getting something done, the fifth part is constantly reevaluating how things are moving along. Are they moving along the way I plan them to? If they are, you let things continue to resolve to the end point that you're looking for. But sometimes it doesn't happen. You have individuals come in, you have variables, you have, especially if you're in God's will, somebody is constantly trying to thwart your efforts, and then you have to collect more information, assimilate the data, develop what they're doing to you, come up with a resolution, execute again, reevaluate. And those five steps we're going to see Nehemiah do over and over and over again in the book of Nehemiah, because if... If God told you as an individual, you have six, less than 60 days to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, secure the city, develop a concept of homeland, and reestablish temple worship, you would say there is in any way, shape, or form that's going to get done. But what Nehemiah realizes is, one, he's the right person at the right time. And how did he, how did he make the decision? We studied this last week that Nehemiah knew that he was the right person at the right time. And remember the different things that he, he collected? What did he do? That's right. He studied Scripture. He studied Scripture. He did the math, and he said, okay, prophecy says this is the time, this is the place. And was he in a position to be able to execute that prophecy? He was. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had the king's ear, and he had it for many, many years, and they were very, very close. And we're going to see how that develops in this chapter 2. Oh, absolutely. You'll miss it. And that's why it's important. You want to start with the end point in mind, but if you, if you stay too focused 
on, on the bigger problem of getting there, it, it's overwhelming. You have to break a problem down oftentimes into its components. I mean, think of all the things that Nehemiah had to accomplish, and we'll go over that. I mean, one, how do you get from being cupbearer of the king to chief engineer, architect, and inspirational leader in Jerusalem, which is, anybody remember from the introduction how far away that is? 800 miles. Now, 800 miles is a long distance today. Think of how far that was almost 2,500 years ago. That's a long way to go. All right? And then think of the danger and the lack of security there is from Susa all the way to Jerusalem. And getting that material from point A to point B. And then once you get there, dealing with some kind of method of security to execute it. There are all these different problems that he had. And so when he sat down and he was inspired to pray, and we covered this for the last two weeks, the next thing was, okay, I've studied scripture. I'm in a political position to do this. I have the intellectual and the physical gifts to accomplish this. I'm God's man. He sits down and prays, and now he has to figure out how to get there. He spends four months in prayer but in preparation, and he waits to the exact time to be able to execute that. When, when everything is ready to go, then he's ready to actually get moving. And meanwhile, he's taking each of these different problems to get to his end point, which is rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, materials, personnel, military security, architects, planning, personnel, all those things, letters of, of, tra letters of safe passage, all these things he's lining up for four months, and then he executes. And I can tell you, the majority of people today, we don't solve problems that way. Um, what is the way that most people respond to a problem in their life? Panic. That's exactly right. The first thing that happens, a problem occurs, we panic. And the very first thing that we should do is what? Pray. Different P. Pray. That's exactly right. In fact, I tell residents, what, we're in an operating room and something bad happens, and we go through this five-step. First thing is, the first part of the problem solving is don't panic. I had a case about six weeks ago, and it wasn't going well at all. And when something happened in the middle of the case that, of course, didn't, we didn't want to happen, I left the operating table, and I sat down in the corner by myself, and my chief resident, who's a really super neat guy, he goes, what are you doing? I said, i got to think for a minute. I said, just leave me alone. Just let me, let's think for a minute. About 10 minutes went by. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And we were off and running. But sometimes what we do when, when something, the dike blows, is not actually to start doing stuff. It's to step back and say, okay, Lord, what would you have me do here? Let me, let me have clarity of mind to collect information to find out what's even wrong. Because we're so used to doing things. And that's what we're going to do today in studying Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an incredibly practical book. There's a great man, but at the same time, great lessons. So let's read the introduction together, uh, and I'll kind of dissect it as we go through it, and then we'll get right into the lesson. All right, all problems in life can be approached by an academic five-step algorithm. And an algorithm isn't, you know, don't get yourself so stuck. What a lot of people do is they have a lot of pride in their planning, and nothing is going to defer them. But an algorithm is different. An algorithm says, okay, we're going to go in this, and then if A happens, I'm going to do A prime. If B happens, I'm going to do B prime. 
Now, I'm over here in the B prime area. Now, if C prime occurs, I'm going to do C. And if D prime occurs, I'm going to do D. And it's a constant branching system that occurs. Okay? It's actions and reactions all the time. So when you're solving a problem, don't get stuck because you're going to see what happens with Nehemiah. He's got a plan. He's working along a plan. All of a sudden, somebody throws a wrench in the plan. Okay? Tobiah and Sambalot and the Arabs. Okay? And they all keep, they keep throwing things into his plan. He collects data, figures out what to do, gives a response, goes. And he keeps moving, but he keeps going with the endpoint in mind. So he still has the endpoint, and he may not get there in a perfectly straight line, but he's going to get there. So he collects data, makes a problem list, devises a plan of action, and then finally the really rewarding part, he activates the plan. Don't be so quick to activate the plan when the problem first occurs. And then evaluate results as you move along. If your results are unacceptable, what do you do? Panic? No, you go back to step one. Repeat the process, but don't do the same thing twice and expect a different result. That's the definition of stupidity. I mean, and, and, and people do it all the time, whether it's raising kids, you know, fixing your car, um, in an operating room. If something doesn't work once, don't, don't say, I'm big. I'm great. I'm going to do it the exact same way, but, <clears throat> but I'm better than the last guy, and it's going to work this time. <clears throat> that's stupidity or pride. Denial. Denial. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nehemiah is far from stupid. For four months, he prayed. He collected data. He devised a plan of action. And in God's perfect time, Nehemiah acted swift, swiftly and de decisively in that plan. The king gave Nehemiah an opening, and Nehemiah, with God's grace, said and did everything with perfect balance, respect, humility, and precise planning. Realizing he's dealing with a king, the king of the Mede and Persian Empire, one of the largest empire the world has ever known. And he's going to go to him, and he's going to say, I'd like to go do this. And he knows, and we're going to study this, that Artaxerxes was the one who stopped the whole thing. His great-great-grandfather released the Jews, send him, sent them back, didn't provide them with any materials, didn't provide them with any means of accomplishing their goal when they got there. Ezra went, Zerubbabel went, but they went just kind of with just half the equipment. Things got kind of bad, and Artaxerxes says, stop everything. So this is the man that Nehemiah has to go to and says, you maybe made that decision a while ago about stopping the Jews, and you had some really good reasons, by the way. Uh, I want to get, get it started. You were wrong. Well, let's see how he deals with that, some of the verbiage he uses, some of the data he collects. Okay, So all because somebody else failed doesn't mean you're going to fail. You just have to do things a little different. No doubt King Artaxerxes smiled beneath his beard. He knew Nehemiah's manner and he knew his mind. After all, as cupbearer, Nehemiah had unparalleled access to royalty and be certain many an evening both would speak volumes to one another. Once Nehemiah opened his heart's desires, King Artaxerxes knew Nehemiah would unfold a comprehensive plan of action, timetable, and address all the concerns with diplomatic brilliance. So just like, this is, an, this is interesting, just like Nehemiah, when he knew that he, when he asked his brother and the individuals that came back from Judah, tell me the condition of Judah, he knew. He didn't know how bad it was, but he knew. And then when he heard how bad it was, and he heard the condition that the Jews were living in, and their lack of unity, and their inability to sacrifice, and the lack of security the, the, the city, he, he collapsed in absolute anguish at it. And so 
Artaxerxes, who is close with Nehemiah, when he sees his heart, he says, what's wrong? Now, Artaxerxes knows Nehemiah well enough. If he asks, if he asks Nehemiah what's wrong, Nehemiah is going to tell him. They have that kind of relationship. So he knew just like when Nehemiah asked his brother, Artaxerxes knew when he asked Nehemiah what's wrong, he knew Nehemiah was going to tell him. He knew Nehemiah was going to not just tell him what was wrong, but say, this is what's wrong, and this is what we need to do about it. And Artaxerxes was prepared to do something about it. But there's a problem. Because in the Mede and Persian Empire, when a law was made, could the king change the law? The answer is no, and we're going to study that. Unlike most other empires at that time, where the king or the emperor could basically, at a whim, change the law and do what he wanted to do, in the Mede and Persian Empire a king could not reverse a law independently. So we're going to see how they circumvented that in just a little bit. It was a little bit edgy, but it worked. <clears throat> when one looks at the end point to rebuild Jerusalem, a task seemed daunting, if not impossible, but with God all is possible, and he would provide the Medes method opportunity for his sovereign will to be accomplished. No task is too great for God's people, no journey too long. Know where you're going and take the first step. Nehemiah did and learned what he accomplished by the power of Jehovah. We will examine the first steps in Nehemiah's plan to rebuild Jerusalem, then make application of this in our own lives, just like we were discussing earlier. We will see how Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem with a clear purpose and a very deliberate plan. He is so sensitive and respectful to his people's situation that even at great personal risk, Israel responded to Nehemiah's call with a resounding, let us start rebuilding. We must make the same application in our own lives, in our own family, in our own community, in our own church, in our own city, state, country, in our own world. Our God is a God of order, purpose, direction, and ability. And we're going to start rebuilding broken, broken things today and what God desires in our own life. We're going to look at this particular chapter in the following way. He, he has to get to Jerusalem. He can't get there unprepared. He gets there unprepared. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, this guy King Gresham, or Geshem, is going to just tear him apart. He has to go there with a plan of action, and he has to move. So he looks at he has he looks for an opportunity. He gets it and he takes it. He takes what he thinks, or what we may think, is an enormous gamble. It's really not a gamble. He's he's assimilated all the data. He knows exactly what Artaxerxes is going to do. He makes a long journey, 800 miles. When he gets to Jerusalem. He does a very covert inspection of the walls, collects data. If anybody saw him collecting the data, they may have killed him. He couldn't go out there with a big army. He was out there by himself at night. He had to know when to go, how to do it, get the data, get out. A very covert operation. He reveals the plan to his fellow Jews, which he knows that there are spies within his camp. There always are. So he knows once he revealed the plan, then other people can analyze uh, courses of weakness. But actually, they were functioning more under panic than he was. Um, there's opposition, of course, when he starts. What does he do? He stops, doesn't panic, prays, collects more data, figures one more problem, what's the plan of action, and he responds. So over and over again, you're going to see Nehemiah fall into the same algorithmic thought pattern, and it's very effective. So who's to say who can't run the five-step algorithm for concurrent problems simultaneously? That is what happens with some individuals. They get so laser-focused, something's occurring, but they just keep beating their head to go in that direction. Sometimes, like the course of a river, you've got to bend. I mean, that's parenting. That's teaching. Sometimes it doesn't go exactly the way planned. And so you have to, all right, 
let me move a little bit over here, collect more data, and then move back in again. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. That doesn't mean you failed, but that happens all throughout life. We're going to see how Nehemiah handles it. Um, Nehemiah did run into these problems, uh, and he solved it, and so can we. So be bold. Be confident in the Lord. Don't don't, uh, recoil from spiritual challenges and glorify God when the outcome is great. So here we go. So let's first see how he's going to get to Jerusalem. So the first person is going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. An opportunity taken. Who's got it? Go ahead. It was the month of Nisan in the 20th year of Artaxerxes was king. He wanted some wine. So I took some and gave it to the king, and I had not, uh, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king said, Why does your face look sad even though you are not sick? Your heart must be sad. Then I was afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. My face is sad because the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What do you want? First I prayed to the God of heaven. Okay, great introduction. Let's see what happens here. So for four months, he had, he, uh, he had passed from his brother Hananiah's visit and Nehemiah's opportunistic audience with Artaxerxes. What is our initial human response when we hear that there's a problem? We panic, and then what do we do? Immediately try to fix it, especially men, by the way, okay? And the wives in the room appreciate that. Men are kind of, we're kind of like genetically programmed to like fix stuff. And some of us put on our tool belt and everybody panics, okay? Others call up the phone and we get the plumber, Others delegate it to our wives to go do it. But in any event, we try to fix stuff. So when he hears this, he didn't try to fix it by actions right away. For four months, he backs up and he says, what do I need to do? I have to go to this king. I have to collect information. So for four months, he's in prayer, but there's this big gap in Nehemiah between chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 2, verse 1. Big gap. The Bible does not aspire to be a book that includes all things, all the time, all scientific facts, all historical facts. What it says is what's in there is true. That's what it says. But it doesn't include everything. There are gaps that occur, and there's a big gap here, four months, okay? And that's not part of the journal. So speculate what Nehemiah has spent the last four months doing. What do you think he's been doing? So it's through prayer, kind of, kind of getting all the different... He's, he's got the end point, which is, I'm, I'm going to be charged with rebuilding Jerusalem, but what are all the problems that I'm going to face in getting there? Emotional problems, physical problems, transport problems. So he's got all the... Now what else has he got? Because recognize when we're going to study later on, it's really interesting. The response that, that Artaxerxes says says, what do you want? These two men know each other. It's not just, oh, gee, you know, having a tough time with your wife. See you later. Go get me another glass of wine. I want a Merlot this time. Something 27 B.C. <laughs> you know, he asked me, he says, what's wrong? He knows something's wrong. And they know each other so well, we're going to study in, in a little bit, that he realized it wasn't a physical problem. He didn't have a headache. He wasn't running a fever. He realized it was a problem of the heart. So it gives you an idea of how close these two men really are. 
What else did he do? So he discerned the individual problems in getting there. What else does he have to do? Because remember, when, when the king asks him what's he want, he better have an answer. What else does he have to solve? Make a plan? How do you rebuild walls? Huh? Yeah, you need manpower. And so just, you need grunts, but what else do you need? Huh? You need material. Yeah, you need material. What are some of the key materials you need to rebuild? You need rocks. The Middle East is filled with rocks. You got a lot of rocks in the Middle East. In fact, a lot of people think Jesus wasn't a carpenter. He actually was a stonemason. That's a whole different theology. But that's exactly right. What's really lacking in the Middle East? Lumber. Timber. Timber was incredibly valuable. Kings controlled the forests. They owned the forests. So now if you build a gate, can you build a whole gate out of rocks? Now remember, everything was burned with fire. What do you need? Timber. Lots of timber. Not just some timber, but a lot of timber. And then you've got to transport the timber. So if timber is valuable, what's the problem in transporting timber? Oh, there you go. There's another problem, security. So now you have individuals that are faithful to the king. How do you get them faithful to you? Because you know what? This timber's worth a lot of money. And if I'm carrying the gun, and you're a cupbearer, and I got something worth an awful lot, and I'm 650 miles away from Susa and 150 miles away from Jerusalem, and I'm going through Philistine, and that king would love a trainload of cedar and oak and other load-bearing woods, what might happen? He tripped over a rock, Artaxerxes, and banged his head and died. Who would know? So what else he has to have? Faithful people. People he trusts. He needs a letter of passage. He needs to let them know that if they mess up with him, Artaxerxes is going to look for a penalty in that. So there's a huge amount of stuff. So prayer, he has to do political research to figure out the environment over that 800 miles. He needs material resources. He needs military support. And then, does he just need grunts when he gets there? He needs artisans. He needs the intellectual intelligentsia to be able to architecturally create these things. Okay. Now, priests are going to work hard, and, our, and, and individuals are going to work hard. But now you need somebody to say, that rock goes there. This wood has to be cut this way, at this angle, in this manner. This door has to be this way. He needs to bring all this stuff because he cannot afford to fail. What is the consequence of failure for Nehemiah as far as he sees it? What's the primary thing that he's worried about? God losing the glory. God has already had, quote-unquote, dishonor by the Jews being carried away by the destruction of their temple. Their, their, their total religious system, their sacrificial system, has been completely cut off. Yahweh, the God of the universe, what kind of God do you have? I can come in there and I can totally destroy anything that your God represents. So if he fails, he feels like he, this, is, this was the prophecy. Now the prophecy is not, is not going to be fulfilled. God's glory is going to be lost. For him, the stakes are enormous not just for him personally. So the Hebrew month of Nisan happened to correspond to the Persian New Year. Now, that was no mistake by Nehemiah. 
the Persian new, in the Persian New Year, royalty often granted special favors during the festival. Okay? You remember when, when Pilate came out and offered Barabbas for Christ? Why did he do that? It was a festival, and it was common for an emperor to do that. Do you think Nehemiah knew this? Of course he did. So part of the process was when he heard from his brother, he had four months to plan, and he said, okay, my end point in this plan, I have to have everything ready by this Mede-Persian New Year because that's when I could go to the king, and it's socially acceptable because you've got to realize Artaxerxes is not working within a power vacuum. What did we learn about the Persian Empire at this time? Was it strong? Was it cohesive? Or what was occurring? Anybody remember from the introduction? It's fractionated. Okay, so what was happening was the Medes and the Persians were allowing a little bit more independence in different areas. But he has to be careful because if the Jews end up revolting in their homeland, he's going to have a whole series of revolts all over, and then he has to come down with an iron fist everywhere. So this new year was a very opportune time for him to do this. So when God, when you're going to do something for God's glory, it doesn't mean right now. Okay? Nehemiah waited four months for an opportune time. No doubt Nehemiah considered the Persian festival calendar into his calculations in part of his plan. So why was it not acceptable to be despondent in front of the king? Now realize this, he had this problem. Don't think he didn't play this king, by the way. He had this problem for four months. And it wasn't until this time where he visually showed despondency. Gentlemen, our wives do this on a regular basis. If you don't already know it, and you haven't been to marriage counseling. So there's a particular thing where now he goes for four months. He didn't show any despondency for four months. The answer is no. Because what's the consequence of showing despondency in front of the king? Well, he wasn't ready, so, but now he is ready. But why would he, when he said, we're going to go here in a second, he actually feared being despondent in front of the king. He wasn't ready. What else? Are you not allowed to do that for some reason? Yeah, why wouldn't you be why, why would it be unwise to look fearful or despondent or emotionally unstable in front of a king? For a cupbearer to do that. Andy Andy's on the right track here. What? Job security. But what? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, and th- w- that's one of the answers. One of the answers I'm driving at now is, one of the answers is, he's already got 40 or 50 wives and needs somebody else. Here's the thing, is that the king's got a lot of problems on his plate. He don't want to have to be bothered with your problems. Yeah, I, I don't care what's going on. Give me the wine, make sure it's not poisoned, and you'd shut your mouth. Put a smile on your face. Tell me a joke. But what else? But if the cupbearer is nervous, if the cupbearer is despondent, come on, guys. Yeah, he's part of a conspiracy to kill him. That's exactly right. So now, are you going to taste the wine and see? You're going to go, you drink it first. Well, I've already already tested it. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. What about the mushrooms? About the spinach? About the pork? I don't eat pork. Tough, you're eating this pork. I'm a Jew. It doesn't matter. Cut a piece off and eat it. So... One was fear of a revolt, fear of a conspiracy. All right? So there was a lot of things. One is it may be a signal of conspiracy. Second, disrespect. Third, the king had enough to deal with, let alone to be bothered with some subjects' petty problems. 
So it, it, at first you might read that and go, you know, what was he, what was he upset about? Why would he be fearful to approach the king? That's, those are the reasons. And those are really good reasons. Okay? It's not that he had to be court gesture, but at the same time, it signaled Artaxerxes that there was a problem. It was very, very unusual. So my point being is, is that, you know, he had a job to do that, that God, he feels, was ordained him to do, but he didn't just rush out and do it right away. There was a process and there was a plan. Yes? No. That's exactly right. So, so what Martin Luther, we're going to read uh, in, in months and months from now, maybe the way I teach, maybe years from now, basically said, you know, pray, pray like only God can do it and then work like only you can do it. It's an interesting thing. We presume that God's going to do the whole thing, and the answer is no. Note the king's response in verse 2. Okay, next person read Nehemiah uh, 1-2 again. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Okay, so uh, note the king's response in verse 2. Give some insight as to how the king knew Nehemiah was heart sick and not physically sick. Yeah, how does he know that? How does he know? I mean, I mean uh, we had my son, John Mark, just last week. I mean, he just looked horrible. And we knew that he didn't, wasn't horrible because some friend dissed him or some girl told him he wasn't attractive. It's because he had the flu. And Anne looked, took one look at him and said, you're sick. And he, she meant physically sick. But other times we'll look at our kids and say, what's wrong? What happened at school today? You can tell the difference. How did, yeah. He knew him well. Your face is sad. So th there's a lot going on here. Artaxerxes just doesn't simply take the wine and just drink it down, okay? He's, he's measuring a response in Nehemiah. He's looking at him. And so now the question is begged, why does he have that? Why does he do that? Well, two reasons. One, he likes Nehemiah. They're friends, I think. But also, when he takes the cup and he takes some food, he's kind of checking you out. Ha yeah. What's going on here? He knows you know, he knows him well and he trusts him. So when he sees that hurting in the heart, okay, and you know what? It's okay to use political influence. We get all mad at lobbyists and we hear all these things about lobbyists and how bad they are. Yeah, there are a lot of bad lobbyists in Washington, but you know what? There's a lot of good lobbyists in Washington. How do you think Washington finds out about problems that are occurring within a corporation, within a people? All right, now, yeah, there's the corruption in that, but you can't completely block that out because that, that's how information gets from you, sometimes to a congressperson, is by hiring a lobbyist. Otherwise, they don't understand there's a problem. Okay? So, yeah, he's looking at him saying, what's the problem? So, as, yeah. I, I disagree with you when you said, you know, he, he played the king. I don't think he was, I don't think he kept his grief shrouded for four months and then all of a sudden thought, okay, this is the day that I'm going to show my countenance before the king and take my chances. Because in verse 11, in Nehemiah's prayer, he said, um, grant him, in Nehemiah, compassion before this man. So I think God chose this moment to reveal to the king Nehemiah's heart. It's, it's an answer to Nehemiah's prayer in granting him compassion before the king. Okay. All right. So as cupbearer, Nehemiah and Artaxerxes uh, were often in each other's presence. They knew each other well. 
and Artaxerxes was genuinely concerned at that moment in time by the Spirit of the Lord. So speculate why Nehemiah was afraid. We've talked about this. A despondent continence was not permitted in the presence of royalties discussed earlier. The king, for any reason, could suspect a change in Nehemiah's loyalty and being his cupbearer, this was incredibly dangerous. That's why he was afraid. But interestingly, Artaxerxes really didn't have that fear, did he? Now that was Nehemiah was going through all the algorithms. What could, what could be the response? When I, when I go to him despondent, and he now really sees it at this festival, there are a lot of things that can happen. He could say, what's wrong? And everything's smooth sailing. Or he could say, cut off his head, he's got poison wine. Go get me another cupbearer. You taste it. I don't want to taste it. Oh, no, you're tasting it. But he was fearful. You know what? Here's a man of God concerned that his prayers are going to be answered. In fact, we'll see in a minute, something occurs and he hits his knees on the spot. Okay? So it's okay to be fearful. It's okay. You, know, you think, well, God has this plan, and the whole time I'm going to go through this head high, no fear, 100% confident. Yeah, that's a Christ-like way to go through it. But you know what? I'm a man. You're a woman. I mean, it's not going to happen. It's okay to have a little despondency. It's okay to show a little fear. That's normal. I mean, look at Peter, how great he was. But, man, he wasn't great the whole time. Here's Nehemiah, total man of God, read the prophecy, know where things are going, really feels like he was the person at the right time, but when really the rubber met the road, he was afraid. But he didn't let that fear paralyze him. He moved past the fear and moved for the glory of God. And that's important. So don't think that that you're going to go through this thing with the banner held high and you're going to feel 100% confident every minute of every time you're solving a problem. That's not going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, that leaves a lot of the, the worry factor in. It's not yes, yes, yes every time. That's right. So, and we learned three things in, in, in Pastor Ted's sermon last Sunday. God heals all our prayers, and what are the three possible answers? You remember? Yes, no, and? That's right. Not right now. That's exactly right. All right. So, uh, let's read verse 3 now, Nehemiah 2.3. And then the next person is going to get ready to read Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, 13, and 19 through 23. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, I, I guarantee you, Nehemiah went through his response. His words were chosen by the Holy Spirit, yes, but they were very carefully sculptured. Look at his answer. This is incredible how well prepared he was. Because he, he played every system here. Believe me, guys, he had every algorithmic path. His response is, let the king live forever. Very first response, why? Why? That's ex- Yeah, I'm not going to kill you, okay? I respect you. I want you to live forever. The whole point of the cupbearer was, right, to provide him unpoisoned food. So the first response, out of respect, and also he knows what one of the things that's going through the king's mind, let the king live forever. And let me tell you something. Artaxerxes is looking at his eyes. He's looking at his body language, and it's like, 
okay. All right, we're okay here. But there's another reason why, when he starts going through his response, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie desolate and its gates, not Jerusalem's gates, and its gates have been consumed by fire. He never uses the word Jerusalem. Here's why. Read Ezra 4, 6 through 8, 13, 19 through 23. Hopefully you'll figure it out. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithradath, Tabil, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Rahum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. So it's uh, 6 to 8 and then 13. We don't have to go through the whole chapter. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the king should know that that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and the royal revenues will suffer. 19 through 23. Uh, the letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. Issued, I issued an order, and a search was made... And it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interest? As soon as a copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Okay, we can stop there. Pretty powerful stuff. So here's what happens. So Zerubbabel goes, Ezra goes, they start rebuilding things. Lo- the, the local trans-Euphrates, river, uh, trans-Euphrates um, uh, power brokers that are under the Persian influence realize what's going on, realize the history of the Jews, the history of, of, of Jerusalem and the Israeli empire. They send word back to Artaxerxes, this Artaxerxes, he does some research, all right? He's not a historian. He, know, he does some research. He looks back and he goes, they're right. Man, you give these people a little bit of power and these guys just start tearing into it. And what's the very first thing that kind of catches his attention? Money. He says, whoa, what's going to happen here when these Jews start rebuilding their culture? Revolt. Not pay their taxes. Insurrection. Now, if the Jews get away with it, what do you think will happen? Uh, the people next door, the Horonites and the Amorites and the Philistines and the Arabs, 
and everybody else starts breaking apart. So Nehemiah had to figure this. He knew all this. He was there. He understood the whole political network. He understood exactly what was going on. And this is where the contrite heart of the leader comes in. This is where the Holy Spirit begins to go because now it's a man-on-man thing. And, and Artaxerxes trusts Nehemiah. And he says, if I let him go, he is not going to st- simulate, uh, stimulate a revolt against me. And there's a level of unwritten confidence that occurs here. It's incredibly remarkable. Right person at the right time. Anybody else would have come before Artaxerxes and said, you know, tell me, you know, I want to rebuild. He's going to come, no way, no how. I know the history of these Jews. Yeah. He does. Oh, I don't think it's just it. I think it's, I think it's all of it. Remember we read, remember I taught a long time ago and we taught about the, uh, the doctrine of predestination and election? One of my favorite verses is, is I think it's uh, Proverbs 21.1. Remember that? Turn there real quick because your point is absolutely perfect and so was yours before Penny, by the way. So you want to look over here in Proverbs. Find it real quick. I believe it's 21.1. Okay. It says here, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So he knows, he, knows, he knows Artaxerxes' character. He knows his continence. He knows the relationship. And he uses that in the heart of Artaxerxes to truly reveal the close relationship of these two men and the trust that they have for one another. So why does Nehemiah... Now look at this here. Let's go to the next point. <clears throat> why does Nehemiah mention the tombs of his father and not the temple in Jerusalem? That's right. He, what he does at this point, you know, Paul says, I've become all things to all men that I may win some over the Christ. Nehemiah is finding common cultural ground here because all throughout histories, honoring your father's tombs, especially kings, was incredibly important. Artaxerxes didn't care about the temple in Jerusalem. You know, if that's to placate the Jews, fine, go back. He didn't care about that. What he says, wait a second, I mean, the tombs are being corrupted? The tombs are unsecured? Well, gee, you know, they believed in the concept of karma. They said, well, if this is going to occur here, it could occur to me. You know, one of the things about when you destroy somebody's tomb, it is like the highest form of insult to you and your family. For many, many, many uh, millennia, no one could find the tomb of Herod the Great. Now think about that. They, just, they kind of thought they knew where, where he was buried. He had this Herodium that he built on this mountaintop. He took this mountaintop in view of Jerusalem and he cut the top of the mountain off, literally. Now think about the work here. Cuts the top of the mountain off, takes all the debris, puts it on the sides, builds retaining walls, and he builds this flat mountaintop. Then he digs a hole in the center of the mountaintop. Okay, and he puts this fortress, and he puts the tombs in there. They couldn't find his tomb. So finally, one smarter archaeologist, he kind of figures it out. He reads all these ancient writings. He starts digging, digging, digging. Doesn't find this tomb. He finds a bunch of this really rare red uh, granite, which is native to Egypt, an incredibly expensive material. He goes, it's got to be part of a sarcophagus. So he's just digging around, digging around, and he finds this sarcophagus, and it is smashed into like thousands of pieces. And for the past like 10 years, they've been putting it back together again. Well, why? Figures out it's Herod's sarcophagus. 
So in this day, when you destroyed a tomb, it was a big deal. When you destroyed the tomb of a leader, it was huge. It was an incredible insult when you did that. Artaxerxes could relate to that. He couldn't relate to the temple. He could relate to the tombs. So in antiquity, tombs, even of your enemy, were respected by royalty lest the same happen to your tomb. The gods would come on you, even pagan. Read Daniel 6, 4 through 9 uh, right now. See what you're going to have from this. At this, the administration and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and the satraps went as a group to the king and said, O King Darius, live forever. The royal administrators, perfects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or man during the next 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, O king, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So we know what the laws of the Medes and the Persians are. Very, very different than other empires. So now, here's, here's the, the way we got to get around this thing. Can't rebuild the, laws of, the walls of Jerusalem. Okay? This city. But if you're securing tombs, you know, yeah, maybe we can get around. So we have to secure the tombs around Jerusalem. And when you go back, when we were in Israel, we saw where, they, where the Nehemiah walls were. And in there, they started including some of the tombs. Now, David's tomb was just barely outside, by the way. But Nehemiah was very careful when he started rebuilding these walls to include a lot of the burial areas. And that was a very politically important part. Because if you notice here, the word Jerusalem is never mentioned. So when you read this, you say the Medes and the Persians couldn't go back on previous royal decrees, especially ones that were written. And Artaxerxes, remember it says he responded in writing back. So, yeah, he kind of got around it. Nobody's going to argue with the king too much. But the word Jerusalem, I'm sure, wasn't anywhere in the writing of that second decree. So you had this kind of edgy thing that was created with these two men. Pretty edgy, I admit. But at the same time... Uh, no one could say anything. Yeah, Gary. Oh, absolutely. Correct. Mm-hmm. He was being very, very careful in this process. And, of course, he, were, he also knew what the rules were. Read Nehemiah 2.4. We're going to just finish with this, I think. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is great. This is one of now. I love how commentators they can agree on things and then they go off. And you have some commentators say this is the absolute first example of a silent prayer in Scripture. And then you have others that said, well, if he had such a close relationship with Artaxerxes, he just as easily could have prayed out loud. I, I, to be honest with you, I don't really care. Could have been silent. It could have been 
out loud. Artaxerxes knew Nehemiah. He knew Nehemiah was a Jew. He knew Nehemiah was a faithful Jew. Let's argue over better things. Whether it was out loud or silent, either way, Artaxerxes recognized the man of prayer. Whether he bent down and prayed silently for a minute or whether he prayed the God of heaven verbally, I don't care. Here's the interesting thing. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I pray to the God of heaven. Clearly, he is right in front of the king when he does this, which to me is really an amazing witness. Here is a pagan king who has ordered the stopping of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and he has the boldness in front of this man to pray to his God. He's just like Daniel, just like Daniel, a really remarkable man. Nehemiah prayed to the king of kings, before requesting to the earthly king of Persia. Why was Nehemiah so confident to pray before the king? No doubt that Artaxerxes cared for Nehemiah and knew Nehemiah's love for the Lord, specifically the God of heaven, because that's what he says here. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven, really distinctly from the man who he says, may the king live forever. It's pretty remarkable how he has this discernment. Nehemiah's prayer was... Uh, probably not a sudden isolated occurrence, but rather commonplace. The king would see him pray. So this was not out of the ordinary at all. By the way, most commentators note that the prayer was silent. The text never states it specifically. It very well could have been out loud. Okay? So kind of a silly thing for individuals to argue over. We have another two minutes, so let's go ahead and read Nehemiah 2, verses 5 through 8. I said to the king, If it please the king... And if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And as I said to the king, if it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the forest fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. He never uses the word Jerusalem in this whole thing. That is not a mistake. He is at a banquet. He is in front of the queen. It is clearly a celebration. Uh, most commentators agree that it's the Persian New Year. This is a big deal. When they see this conversation going on between Nehemiah and, and uh, Artaxerxes, and this, of course, is Bible fiction, I think everybody got real quiet. What are the two of them talking about? If he said he's going back to rebuild Jerusalem, man, that would create a firestorm. So they keep talking about this city, this city, this city. Now, some of them probably knew Nehemiah was a Jew. Some of them probably didn't. But he never actually uses the word Jerusalem. That is politically correct. And you know what? When we're in God's will, we don't have to have the boldness to irritate other people. That doesn't give you a license to, like, get under somebody's skin and get in their face. Nehemiah handles this very politically correctly. You know, a lot of us think, well, this is the right thing to do. I'm going to get in their face. I'm going to tell them who there are. Nehemiah never does that. He is very careful in the words he chooses, the opportunity he chooses, and God's will gets done. Okay? It gets done. So 
Yeah, good point. Because um, God is so glorified through the proper movement and the silence mm-hmm. of, of not becoming showy mm-hmm. about it, and um, the blessing is huge. I mean, Nehemiah is probably just so... I think he's probably calmed down at this point. No, no, I mean, he's calm, but inside oh. he's thinking, yeah. oh, Lord, you are so moving right now. Absolutely. I mean, He's watching it unfold in a yes. second. Five. But again, it took four months to get him from point A to point B. Because here, here's, here's, yeah, here's the incredible thing. We're going to dissect this uh, next week. But what happens at this point, you know, the king knows Nehemiah. So he says, okay. <laughs> He's shaking his head going, what's your plan? You know, I, I, I know you haven't used the word Jerusalem. I know you haven't used the temple to Yahweh. You know, what you got going? And Nehemiah just goes, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. I mean, now all of a sudden he's got the confidence, and he is rolling. But the whole time he was respectful, he was disciplined. He needed to come in and say, the prophet Jeremiah said this, and Daniel confirmed it, and I'm here at this time, and I'm telling you the Lord says this. Now Moses had the, had the confidence to do that because God verbally in the body of Jesus Christ, I believe, in the burning bush said, you go do this. And that's different. He was on his knees in prayer. So here you're dealing with two different sets of circumstances, two different types of kings, not a relationship between Moses and Pharaoh. Pharaoh hated Moses for a lot of reasons. I mean, he's Charlton Heston for crying out loud, won an Academy Award. You got to hate the guy. By the way, you know that Charlton Heston, on his way to get the... Uh, to, to go to the uh, Oscars, got a flat and was late. And what he said was, if I only had my staff, it wouldn't have happened. That's, that's actually a true story. It's pretty funny. All right, so note again, uh, just kind of close the loop on this page. Note again that the name Jerusalem is never ma- mentioned but simply inferred. Very important when you're talking with somebody. Be, this, it's okay to be p- politically correct. Uh, in verse 6, uh, this, just the queen, his, her name is Damaspia. And historians um, during this time agree that she had tremendous influence over the king's uh, uh, decisions. And her presence may have worked in the favor of Nehemiah. Now, again, this is Bible fiction. I think Nehemiah's relationship with, with uh, Artaxerxes, I think, extended his continence and his character, not only was just with him and Artaxerxes, his whole relationship with, with that echelon was extremely good. That he had the confidence to ask this actually in front of the queen because the queen, he felt, if anything, would give him a more positive response. The queen liked him because it was very easy for this queen to turn around and say, no way they're going to create a city and an empire again. They're not going to pay you taxes. They're going to instill all kinds of revolts. Don't. Yeah, he felt real confident that she was going to support him in this, which even gives you more of a, an idea of his personality. Okay. On the part of Xerxes, his primary response when, when he says, I want to go, he says, the primary response is, you want me to send him back? Yeah. I don't, okay, go do whatever you got to do. I need you here. I need you here. And what we're going to find out that it was 12 years. Pretty long time. All right, so let's go ahead and, and uh, close with a prayer. Uh, Paul, can you call us in prayer? Lord, thank you so much for sharing John and his fellowship this morning. Uh, give us 
patient and say the trick to use on whatever you put in front of us every day. And let us go this week and audit the sign the way you want for us to go. In your name we pray. Amen.